Welcome to another edition of An Architecture Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill. And yes, you know, I'm always excited, especially when I get to talk to talented, creative people that we need to know more about. And today I'm in the lovely home of Baltimore Sun staff photographer, Amy Davis. And I gotta tell you, I've been a fan of her work for years because I used to see her work in the Baltimore Sun newspaper. And in my wildest dreams, I never thought that one day she'd be writing a book and another day we'll be consulting with her on a project that is going to be featured at the National Building Museum in Washington, DC. So without further ado, let me introduce the author of Flickering Treasures, Rediscovering Baltimore's Forgotten Movie Theaters, Amy Davis. It is a pleasure to be with you today, Philip. And that makes two of us in my wildest <laughs> dreams. I never thought I would do it, be doing a big, beautiful coffee table book or that it would then become a museum exhibition. <laughs> so we both are in a state of fantasy, right? It's reality now. Well, it, it is reality. And I, I just have to say that Johns Hopkins University Press uh, did a magnificent job. Um, the book feels good in your hand. The book looks good. It reads good. Even the quality of the paper is nice. And the, the, the combination of black and white versus color is phenomenal. In other words, kudos to you for the great work and uh, Johns Hopkins University Press. Let's look at a couple quick artifacts that we're going to talk about, and then we'll just segue into Flickering Treasures and the great work that Amy Davis has done. Amy, what are you holding in your hand right now? I am very excited <laughs> to be holding for the first time this beautiful soft cover book called The Baltimore Red Book, and it says it's a Negro Business Encyclopedia of Baltimore, 1948. A little bit before my time and your time, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and on page 119, if you open it carefully, what will we see? Oh, I'm opening it very carefully. Theaters. This is really exciting because in other books and research I've done, usually the African-American theaters are just blended in with the others. But here right. I can see at one glance... There are about 20 or so. I think there's 21. 21 uh, African-American theaters, starting with the Anthony in Dundalk, <laughs> all the way down to the Roosevelt on Biddle Street. Now, if this was visual, you would see the wonderful smile on Amy's face, but it is not visual. But trust <laughs> me, she's smiling as she's reading and looking at this. This is, this is great because uh, in addition to the, the street addresses, and by the way, that's very handy because sometimes those vary from source to source. They, so, be, they do, so yes. So this is a good source for that. And the phone numbers are great. Could you be read a couple, please? <laughs> I love them. <laughs> because the uh, Cary on North Cary Street has a Madison phone number, Madison 3058. I love and it. the Diane on Pennsylvania Avenue is Lafayette 0427. And we go all the way down to the Harlem on North Gilmore Street is Gilmore, 1872. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners actually remember those numbers because if you're of a certain age, you know that that's how the uh, C&P, I'm showing my age, I can go back to C&P and Bell Atlantic and so forth, but that's how you uh, gave out your telephone number. Yeah, yeah. It's terrific to see that. And 
I'm going to have to give this back to you because I'll start <laughs> right. No, rifling no, no, through No, you cannot do it. that oh my because goodness, it's we are, we're only focusing today on the colored theaters <laughs> okay, uh, in, in Boston. Okay, I to turn the page. <laughs> uh, do not because that's a different podcast. Okay. But we, we will leave this and move to one other quick artifact and then we would delve into something that you are allowed to turn the page on because it's your creation. Okay. <laughs> and that's flickering treasures. But before that, the other item that we brought is a very early 1919 magic lantern slide, as they were called. This is in beautiful condition. <laughs> and so this is a, a glass slide, kind of heavy. And it says, a scene from the ambassador, All Bows Theater, Thursday, May 8th, 1919. Mr. Howard Milton Gross in the title role and chorus of 40. <laughs> under the auspices of Churchman's Club, St. James P.E. Church. And prices were 25 cents to a dollar. And they also had no war tax. Don't you love that? But, yes. But the other movie connection ah. is oh, what you're about to okay. read. <laughs> and on the side, there's an identifier that this beautiful slide comes from the Dunbar Theater in Baltimore, Charles Votary Maker. Now, does the Dunbar Theater register or ring a bell with you? Absolutely. The Dunbar was a very important theater in East Baltimore. It's long gone. It was raised for a housing project, but it was a very important early theater. Yes, it was. Do you know the uh, founding owner? The name? Let me see. There were a couple. I know Carr was the one who took it over, but... Refresh my memory on who... Josiah Diggs. That's right. D-I-G-G-S. Right. Who, for the record, was one of the wealthiest businessmen in the early 20th century black Baltimore. Mm, mm. Well, I do know they claim to be the first African-American movie house in the yes, city. And so that's they, significant. That is significant. And they would have often small orchestras performing inside the theater before or after the movies and plays were run. I know. Is that I, phenomenal? Yeah, I remember reading that they they often had a piano player, and sometimes <laughs> they had a special drummer, Chick Webb, now, who was from East Baltimore. I was, say, that's was a, a drummer East, there. Exactly. Now, see, you're educating me. I love it when the the transfer of knowledge is this fresh. I did not know that Chick Webb performed at the Dunbar. Yeah, that's cool. That, to think that's about. that's beyond cool. And today, he is honored with the Chick Webb Memorial. Recreation Center right. that was just right. approved by CHAP, Commission for Historical Architecture Preservation, as a historic landmark in East Baltimore. Most people think of him in connection with Ella Fitzgerald. Of course, yes. But he was a talent from the time he was a kid. I, I remember reading that he would tap spoons on the curb. I love it. Chick Webb's name is more famous in New York, performing at the Savoy and Battling of the Band. But Baltimore has every right to claim him because Baltimore made him. And so I love it when I can hear original stories about Chick, a young Chick Webb in Baltimore. So thank you for sharing uh, his information about at the Dunbar. And getting back to uh, Dunbar for your listeners, that was really a beautiful theater in its day. It was good-sized, and the photos I've seen of it, it had a beautiful vertical sign, what they called a blade sign, rimmed in lights. It did. And it looked like a really wonderful theater. At, at one point, it's listed as, I think, the, the finest colored theater mm-hmm. in the area. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and one, one resource to learn a little bit about the Dunbar Theater is in 
Robert W. Coleman's First Colored Directories of Baltimore. So that's where you can get some good information on addresses, and some of them are even leading sponsors on the front or back covers of the colored directories. So let's give kudos to Robert W. Coleman and the colored directories, as well as Josiah Diggs and family. And in the exhibit, there's an item that comes from the Diggs car collection, and that would be the colored projectionist certificate. Right. And when you think about that phrase, who in the world knew? You know, when you think about Jim Crow and segregation and, you know, for coloreds only and for whites only, your mind doesn't instantly go to a movie theater and think about, well, there needs to be a, a colored person operating that. So when I was contacted by you for this wonderful project at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., right away we quickly dug into our archives to figure out what would be provocative or compelling that could enhance the work that you already did and tell a larger kind of story. So that's why we selected that, and we're glad that you and the museum were in love with it as well. I'm really glad that we have that item in it because that was something I hadn't thought about until well, I began yeah. my, my research. research. As you sure. said, I'm sure I knew that the theaters were segregated. Right, right. But I didn't think about the makeup of the, the projectionists, right. but the segregation extended to the unions. It did. It and did. the white projectionist union would not allow African Americans in right. it. So right. they started their own very early on because there were a slew of early theaters right. for African Americans. Right. They weren't all uh, operated by African Americans like Josiah Diggs, but right. still, there were a lot of theaters which have disappeared, and that's they all employed. Uh, well, and that really leads us into a whole nother project that could delve into looking at who these color projectionists were, where their training came from, and what was going on with the colored union. You know, so again, it's like an onion. I keep talking to people about this famous onion. When you peel back one layer of the onion, you get to another layer, which really is good, and another layer. And before you know it, you just have all these layers, and they're all connected. And they all have something worthwhile to share. So, you know, I, I just think what you've done is just magnificent. It's the tip of the iceberg that can set the table for others to come along after you, after me, and say, oh my goodness, there's so much rich fabric here that we can weave some new research and projects out of it. So again, kudos to you for this wonderful effort. And I, I, I want to say that it's not often that your book can be turned into a wonderful exhibit. You know, when you talk about dreaming big or thinking outside of the box, this is outside of the box. So in your wildest dreams, did you ever? No, no. I <laughs> <laughs> I was just tickled that the book came out so well. It's, al it's already in a second printing, so that's been gratifying. Now, is the second printing in hardback or paperback? It's the same as the first really? hardback, yeah. yeah. Really? So it's the same beautiful coffee table quality. That, that's wonderful. But that was very rewarding. But to have the story expanded into a museum exhibition right, is right. thrilling on many levels. I'm still pinching myself about right, right, it. Right, um, right, it's, right. it's going to be um, really <laughs> thrilling to walk in there. I've been closely working as a co-curator sure. with Deborah Sorensen, the curator, and the uh, wonderful staff at the National Building Museum. 
but still, at this point, it's in their hands as right. far as right, right, <laughs> producing right. the exhibits themselves. You've done, you've done I worked it. on the content. Right. Yes. So when I walk in there and see that, I'm going to be as excited as anybody. Maybe more so, but um, you have a right to be. You have a right to be. <laughs> but right away, I knew that if we could do an exhibit in a museum, we could tell the story on different levels and the story could be expanded in many ways Mm -hmm. because I had a lot more information that I acquired and there just simply wasn't space in the book for all of it. So this exhibition enables us to push it in further directions. And one one in particular is this topic of the the African American theaters. We decided to specifically focus on Pennsylvania Avenue because of its fame as an entertainment district. Right. Not to slight the Dunbar and the other theaters right, right, around right, town. Right, right, right. I agree with you. But uh, <laughs> just for, uh, you know, to, to give visitors just a sense of how impressive the collection of theaters were in that community. Right, that was right. one part of what made that neighborhood so vibrant. And today's population does not have an inkling of the vibrancy of Historic Pennsylvania Avenue, right. or as it was called back in the day, the Avenue. Right. Uh, I've been researching the again the Avenue for over twenty five years, uh, and what I realized, and I've I've said this at conferences around the country, we need to get past Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance. Urban meccas like Pennsylvania Avenue in Baltimore, Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia, which was known as the Harlem of the South, Beale Street in Memphis, you have uh, Black Bottom in Detroit. We have U Street in the District of Columbia. So you see that during the same flowering of activity post-World War One, you see these black pockets just booming. And why are we still just zeroing in on Harlem when Baltimore has enough fabulous stories dealing with entrepreneurism, dealing with important visitors, dealing with different types of entertainment, and not just movie theaters, but dancers and musicians and magicians and like each location on the avenue has a story to tell and unfortunately we only know of the avenue because of the royal theater right and so as a as a true historian i have to take umbrage to anyone that wants to just focus on the royal the royal could not be successful if you didn't have the surrounding strength from the communities and Pennsylvania Avenue is should be considered as an artery. It's one of the main arteries of this 175 block radius that in 2004 was designated by CHAP, Commission for Historical Architecture Preservation, as Old West Baltimore. So you've got to look at why Pennsylvania Avenue was so vital, and it's because you have these black neighborhoods that are enveloping the avenue. Then the, the avenue has a national following because of the movie theaters, because of entertainment, and because of the geographic proximity of Baltimore to the, um, D.C., to Virginia, to New York, and lastly, it was a part of the Chitlin circuit. So, in other words, Baltimore should be doing a better job of lifting up the historical narrative that comes out of Pennsylvania Avenue. So what you're doing fits in there so nicely because you're going to cause people from buying your book, from coming to the exhibit, from visiting your website, and your website is? Flickering Treasures. Okay. Dot com. Dot com. And you can also find her on Facebook. 
the more people come to your sites and read your book and go to the exhibit, the more they can really get a, a clearer understanding of what was and how exciting that ground is that we now walk on. It's important to just be able to sense those layers of history. Right, exactly. It goes back to the onion feet. I'm talking about. That, but, exactly, yeah. but, exactly. But, and the, the other thing I wanted to say that I think people overlook is that it did not happen in a vacuum. Okay, you can't just take one building out of that long street because everything is connected. Okay, and so you know the name of the gentleman who was the projectionist at the Royal. Um, you tracked him down and was successful in speaking to him. Other people have not been, but the point is, everybody has a role to play in reclaiming that history and trying to document it. And you have done a great job with that that will spur on other people to do more work. You've already caused us to dig deeper into our uh, archives in the Enchanting Company to make connections to these different theaters. There's just so much content coming out of Pennsylvania Avenue from the illegal number runners to the prostitutions with Madam Selena Morris down at the lower end of the avenue to famous people coming from Red Fox to Pearl Bailey who lived in Baltimore at one point. The stories just go on and on and on and we should be celebrating this by writing new books and doing plays and documentaries and so forth. So again, kudos for putting a positive spin on a town that frequently gets a negative stain in the national limelight. Well, you know, sometimes one doesn't appreciate one's own hometown until somebody <laughs> on the outside says, hey, you, what do you have here? This right. is pretty cool. And, and you are and, an outsider. And I think that, well, I think that's part of it, right, not, right, not right. as a native Baltimorean. Right. But I've certainly come to passionately love right. my adopted hometown right. of Baltimore. Right. But to have Flickering Treasures be at a museum, a beautiful museum in our nation's capital, will really, I hope, spark more of a national dialogue about these very things that you're talking about. I hope and, so, too. And one of the ways we have expanded the narrative of the book is to look at Pennsylvania Avenue, and we call it the Avenue and Beyond. Mm -hmm, and there's mm -hmm. a beautiful new map that was uh, a custom design for this exhibition. There is an overall map of Baltimore City in the book, by Lucidity Information Design, and Bob Cronin, the designer, he has done a stunning map of Pennsylvania Avenue, and I selected 20 theaters, which I felt were the most significant and relevant uh, to include. So they're not just the ones that were literally on Pennsylvania Avenue, right. but as you described, they were in that the neighborhood from the Fulton to the North, to the Harlem, to the Gilmore. And it's appropriate to include them. Again, they don't have to be on the physical avenue, but they are part of that larger movie theater kind of conglomeration that took place. Right. So I right. agree, and I applaud you on that. Right, and I Definitely. sort of struggled to think which theaters to include right. and not. Right. So <laughs> there were some interesting historic ones that, that aren't on the map because geographically they were just a, a little too far. Right. Like the Queen, which was uh, later called the New Queen on West Lexington Street. Right. That just physically was a right. little right. Too, too far, far to far make the... Sure. To, to, to really make the, make the, the stretch, work. Yeah, right, right. right. I, but even I, for the book, the, right. the book is, is an armchair tour. It is. And <laughs> so I really had the dilemma 
I wanted to include more of the well-known African-American theaters in the Pennsylvania Avenue right. area, right. but specifically Lower Pennsylvania, right. Pennsylvania Avenue was a subject of a vast urban renewal or urban yes. removal, however you want to call it. Displacement, urban, Displacement. Yeah, all of that. So, so many blocks were gone that for me, coming there with my camera and tripod, right. trying to capture what was even if I could find a good old photo of some of these theaters and they were not right. all available, right. it was really a challenge to make a, a an effective, really strong, fine art photo, which is what I was trying to do with my color photography. Right, right, right. So regrettably, some of the theaters that would have merited inclusion, perhaps, were left out. That's right. But I'm making up for that at the museum show because with the Avenue and Beyond, we give more of them their due. You're giving and them a with new life, pictures a new life. and information, sure. so yeah. so we'll have twenty theaters that we've selected that are, are worth learning more about. Right, and of those, to prove my point, only four are still standing. Yeah, the map shows you that there are colored dots that correlate right. to sure. whether they're still sure. standing or sure. not, and so you can see just at a glance how few are left. So we wow. still have the Harlem. Right. We still have the Lenox. Yep. And the Gilmore. Right, I'd right. love to talk about the Gilmore. Okay. And the Morgan, which was known for many years as the Shantz. The Shantz is, right, right. Uh, I'm familiar with that. So those are still there, but of course we lost the Regent, we lost the Royal, we right. lost the Met, we right. lost countless and, and, others. And, uh, my head is just bouncing all over the place with uh, ideas of uh, connective research because what to me is exciting is to figure out on what date different performances were being held at these facilities. And sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that so-and-so was here in Baltimore and performed at that facility. And so that opens up a whole nother research avenue. But I want to tell you my Harlem story. Baltimore had, <clears throat> during the 30s, a film company came into town, I think it was called Gramercy Films, and they picked up local black students from West Baltimore, from the community, to participate in a film called Children of Circumstance. It premiered, and I was fortunate to interview one of the last identified uh, characters in the wow. film. And uh, he told me, and I could back it up with research, he told me that uh, they did not get paid, as they were promised. Mm -hmm. They got paid ice cream <laughs> and a ride in a limousine. Oh my! And yeah. the film Isn't that has not—yeah, exactly. The film has not surfaced in generations. Children of Circumstance is a great story of the black community working with the film company and having something premiere in its own community. Some of the other stories that we talk about—you see national names coming to Baltimore for a performance, but this was kind of unique because it was from children that went to Booker T. Washington. Uh, junior high school on McCullough Street and then would matriculate at Frederick Douglass High School at Calhoun Carey and Baker Street. So you have just a neat local angle that was pretty exciting. So The Harlem is a fascinating case on so many levels. It it's, the, it's the only theater that began life as a church, yeah, and became right. a theater and with now the, the church again, right? and, and then <laughs> right, returned right, to right, being a right. church. So it's a very striking yes. Massive stone it is. building. It is. But when that opened, the pride in the community for this beautiful yes. church 
was stupendous, and there was this parade when I did my research reading uh, through the old uh, Afro-American accounts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was this amazing parade from downtown all the way to this theater. Can't you just it see this in your eyes? Can't, can't big, you visualize that absolutely. parade? Absolutely. Yes, it was yes, a big yes. deal. I described it in my, my book because all the different social organizations mm -hmm, participated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also, in, in talking to individuals about their uh, memories of the different theaters, some said that their parents wouldn't let them go to Pennsylvania Avenue. Come on, say that again, because you're the first person other than myself that has publicly said that. Say it again, please. Uh, <laughs> several people said that their, their parents right. would not let them go to theaters on Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. They disapproved. Right. They were uneasy about right. that. Yes. And they thought that having a, a, a place like the Harlem was a safer destination. They were comfortable with their children being there and not being exposed to the, <clears throat> you know, wrong elements right, that right, they might right. find on Pennsylvania and, Avenue. And you are so correct. Um, we have interviewed quite a bit of people over the decades, and several of them talked about Pennsylvania Avenue was not the glorious place that people today want to celebrate its historic past as being this phenomenal. Not It was not everybody's cup of tea. And if your family was of a certain ilk, whether it be uh, class or religion or or name, you could not go to any part of Pennsylvania Avenue, not just the lower blocks or uh, so forth. You just were not going to be allowed to uh, be seen on the avenue. So fascinating. Thank you for saying that. I, I, have, uh, I have one other story. I spent a summer interviewing a gentleman that lived in Harlem Park during, during World War II. And in telling me about how during the summer months it would be so hot in those old houses, and if they were old then, imagine how they are now. Or how, you know, sixty, seventy, however many years yeah. later. I'm not doing my math correctly. He said that the neighborhood would go and spend the night in Harlem Park. They would leave their doors unlocked and come out and actually sleep in the park, which is right there where the Harlem Theater is. And then I said, well, did you have any recollection of the theater? He says, did I? He said, I can tell you every angle and all the different times that my friends figured out how to sneak in without paying, uh -huh. without paying to go to the Harlem <laughs> Theater. So I'm not naming his name in case he will be listening to this podcast, <laughs> but I do appreciate all those stories he talked about, about how he and his friends would sneak into the Harlem. So that is happened, that a great story? Well, that, yes, that happened at just about every <laughs> right, theater. Right. And the Harlem was large, so right. there were probably right. many opportunities to, yeah. to sneak and, in. And, and that, that, <laughs> that segues to my last point. Within the black community, there was a lady named Viola Hill White who, to this day, if you mention her to some older people, they will get a frown and they'll talk about how tough she was. Because if you played hooky from school, she would find you. So if you were trying to hide out in the theater... Viola Hill White was going to find you and come grab you out of the theater and take you back to the school and get you in trouble. Back in the day, they had a truancy department. So today, we can't even imagine that the Baltimore City Public School System could have a department for truancy where they would physically go out and find you. So think about how much fun it must have been to those rebels and those deviant children that were going to sneak out of home and not go to school but hang out in the theaters during the day. Um, uh, there's a delightful story in the Flickering Treasures book told by Andy Ennis, a musician. Oh, yeah, he, he is Ethel, Ethel Ennis's, Ennis's brother, of course. Brother. Yeah. 
and um, he like just about all the kids his age um, played hooky one day because James Brown was appearing at the Royal. Yeah, yeah and, a famous presentation. You know, in theory they could have gone after school, but the price was uh, right. went up in the That's evenings, right. so they needed the bargain admission price. So right. they all played hooky for the noon show, and they were all sitting there having a great time. James Brown mm-hmm. was was getting into it, and all of a sudden, Officer Viola White marches out from behind the stage and says, stop, stop the music. The lights came on, and they were caught. He said, you only played hooky once. You didn't mess with Officer White. We, We were in the community doing field work, as we call it, over by the old Douglas High School, met Calvin Carey and Baker. And when I started talking and um, showing them the Black America series book that we did in 1999, they got excited because these men were 60, 70 years old or so. And they said one picture allowed them to go back in time and then they wanted to segue to other things. And so everybody wanted to talk about Viola Hill White and what kind of impact she had and how she put the fear of God in these little kids. And they still remembered it 100 years later. They're like, oh, I'm, I, can, I, I never forget how she did that. So She was an institution. She was. Yeah. She was. Yeah. And and so <laughs> this is why you need to pick up Flickering Treasures, Rediscovering Baltimore's Forgotten Movie Theaters by Amy Davis and Yes Forward by the noted legendary Barry Levinson and it's done by the Johns Hopkins University Press. And the other plug is for the National Building Museum to open Flickering Treasures, Rediscovering Baltimore's Forgotten Movie Theaters on November the 17th in Washington, D.C. I hope that many of you will go, then you'll come back and tell your friends and family. We want this to be a successful exhibit that will make Baltimore and Amy Davis proud. And it concludes on... October the 14th, 2019. I plan to go to this museum. I want to continue to have dialogue about the importance of documenting uh, Baltimore's forgotten movie theaters because there's much more to this exciting tale. So I would like to thank you, Amy Davis, as a staff photographer at The Sun and the great craftsmanship that you have exhibited over the last (coughs) years, which we won't say. I want to thank you for a great book a great interview, and more importantly, your friendship. Thank you, you and thank you for lending your precious items to the museum exhibition. The least I can do. Thank you.